Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful. Kindle them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit and they shall be created. And thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. God who instructed the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Heal Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Mother of the Eucharist, pray for us in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. So this class on the, on the Eucharist, and so um, the, um, there's, I'm taking this from this book, um, which I wrote for the seminary class here on the Eucharist. So I teach the seminarians on the Eucharist. So what I'm going to try and do with you is condense into five evenings what they get in 30. So uh, that, and I have to cram it in um, to the 30, so it'll be more difficult to cram into the five. But we'll do what we can. And... Um, so t- today, tonight, we're going to look at these two questions. Why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? And that's really the most important question. And what is it for? And we'll see there's no one answer but three answers. And then we'll go on to the Eucharist in Scripture. And that may seem odd, the Eucharist in the Old Testament. But we'll spend um, a good amount of time looking at the preparations, the figures of the Eucharist in the Old Testament. And then if we have time, I'm not sure, we'll look at um, the Eucharist um, instituted by Christ and explained in the Bread of Life Discourse. All right, that's our plan for tonight. Next week, um, we'll look at the real presence and transubstantiation, and that'll be a little more, um, we'll have to use some philosophy, and that might be a little more arduous. And then we'll look at the sacrifice of the Mass in the third, and then in the fourth class, we'll look at our, how we participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. What do we bring to it? And then in the last one, we'll look at Holy Communion and what we receive from Jesus. All right, so that's our, our plan. So tonight, we'll start with this question. So those of you who were at the Theology on Tap, uh, show of hands again, who went to the Theology on Tap on the Eucharist? So, yeah, about a quarter of you. All right, so I'm going to have to review. So you guys who went to that... Um, might be bored for a few minutes, but maybe not. Um, so that talk was on why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? And we said that there, um, there are three answers why Jesus instituted the Eucharist. But we can simplify it by saying the Eucharist um, is the sacrament of love or charity. Now, the, the medieval um, theologians, they like to make connections. Seven sacraments, seven virtues. Um, right, the seven fundamental virtues are the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, 
temperance and fortitude, and the three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. All right, if we've got seven virtues and we've got seven sacraments, you might think, at least if you're Thomas Aquinas, that they sh should line up, right? And so we could say baptism is the sacrament of faith. It's the foundation. Um, we don't have to go through them all. But of the seven sacraments, the sacrament of love is the Eucharist. And for that reason, the Eucharist is the queen of the sacraments, just as love or charity is the queen of the virtues. Right? So the road that we're going to take to understand the Eucharist is by looking at um, charity. And in particular, so charity we use in a lot of senses. Often we mean, um, we say charity when we talk about giving alms. But here I'm taking charity in the sense of self-giving love. All right, so the, the deepest kind of love and the, the fullest kind of love is spousal love, right, in which one makes a full and complete gift of self to the beloved so full that I can't take it back. Right? And that's why marriage is for forever, for, for life, a total gift. And so the way that we're going to look at the Eucharist is it's the sacrament of Christ's total gift of self to his bride. Right? Who's Christ's bride? That's the church, and therefore all of us. Right? And so therefore we should be able to and I don't know, want to say deduce, but we should be able to, by looking at what spousal love is, we should be able to understand what the Eucharist is. Right? So if we look at spousal love, um, if you're married to someone, so, right, so I'm married, and um, I live with my spouse, obviously, um, with, my, with Marcia, my wife. And um, so that's the first property of spousal love, is that you want to dwell and share life with the beloved. It's tragic when circumstances separate um, spouses. And so that first part of spousal love is to, um, to share life together with the beloved. And then secondly, um, St. Paul, in the letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, he has a text often read at weddings, that the, um, he says, Husband, um, love your wife as Christ loved his church and shed all of his blood for her. So part of spousal love is sacrificial love. Right? To give ourselves totally to another, we have to be um, committed to sacrifice ourselves for the beloved, even to the point um, of the end, um, as Christ did for his bride. Right? So spousal love is dwelling with, but it's also giving oneself for the beloved. Right? So... We could say with that. To dwell with the beloved, to give oneself for and then the last one, to give oneself to the beloved, right? A gift of self. And so what I'm suggesting is that the Eucharist can be understood as Christ's self-gift to his bride with these three parts, to dwell with his bride, to give himself for his bride. And so the Eucharist, so because the Eucharist is Christ's gift to dwell with his bride, 
We'll look at the real present. That'll be next week. So he stays with us. But it's not just him staying with us. All right, so he's right upstairs in the chapel, right in the tabernacle. So he dwells with us. But it's not just that. He gives himself for us in every mass. So every mass is Christ's sacrifice on Calvary made present here. And I'll explain that at length. But then, spousal love wants to give oneself to the beloved, and so Christ gives himself to us in communion. So we ask this question, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? We could say, well, to dwell with us, to give himself for us every day of his bride's life, and to give himself to us every day of our life, if we're, or every week, or however often we can get to Mass. So the Eucharist is a mystery of presence, sacrifice, and communion. And they match up to these three purposes um, for which Jesus instituted the Eucharist. So that's that's the title of this course. The Eucharist, Mystery of Presence, and sacrifice and communion. Right? And so you can see in communion is the word union. So it's a real union, but a union with. Christ's full union with us by giving himself to us. The same Christ who's given himself for us and dwells with us. All right? Yeah. So maybe the best way to think about this is. And we'll look later tonight at Christ instituting the Eucharist. But, so Christ institutes the Eucharist when? You all know? Last Supper, which is the last night of his life. And so that's important because and to, so the last night of his life, he's about to leave his bride. And he's about to leave his apostles and disciples and with his physical presence. It's true he was going to rise from the dead and come back and be with them for 40 days. But he knew that he was going to ascend after those 40 days. So he was about to leave his bride with his physical presence. And when we know that we have to, um, so suppose somebody has um, um, an illness that it looks fatal, right? And we're dying, we would like to give something to our loved ones. And so, but what can we give them? Generally, it's an heirloom. So I have my grandfather's watch, or a painting, or a picture, or a photograph, or, or something like that. So Jesus, about to depart in death from his bride, wanted to give to his bride something so that she could um, remember him and have some presence, but he could do better than we can do. Yeah. So he managed to leave and yet give her his presence, full and entire, but with one peculiarity, veiled. And we'll talk a a lot about that, especially next week. What do I mean veiled? So we don't see Jesus' presence in the Eucharist, right? He's there totally, so we've got him upstairs, all of him, not any of him missing, Um, but he's veiled by um, the appearances of bread and wine. And so we've got him present, but in a way 
in which we have to exercise faith. So in a, a way proper to a bride who's not yet in her ultimate condition. Right? So we're the bride, but we're a bride in exile, the exile of this life. And so our bridegroom is present with us, but in a way proper to a bride who's not yet at home. So we'll talk more about that. That would be the with there. And so, right, the last night of his life, he wants to leave his disciples something. So what does he leave? His very presence, but in that hidden way. Right? It's all of him, but not visibly present as he was up until that point. Not tangibly. Uh, all right? Second thing, he's about to die, and what's he about to do? He's about to die for his bride. He's about to die for each one of us. And so he wants to give to his bride, not just his presence, but the very act of his giving himself for us. Now, we, again, can't do that. So just take another analogy, falls 10 billion miles short. Um, you know the story of Maximilian Kolbe? So he was in the concentration camp, and um, somebody escaped from the concentration camp. And in retaliation, they took 10 prisoners at random to be starved to death. All right, so they just picked them out from the crowd. And the last one broke down crying. He was married. And he said, my wife, my family, et cetera. And so Maximilian Kolbe steps up and says, I want to die instead of that man. And the miracle was that the SS let him do it. They let him substitute himself. And so he got starved to death. Um, and that man survived and fell into depression, not surprisingly, because he realized this saint, this priest and saint died for me, and who am I? But then he recognized, I have to, I have to make it out of here alive. I've got a mission because I have to tell what happened. I have to tell that heroic act of love so that it isn't gone in oblivion. All right, so Jesus, though, can do something better. He wanted to not just have his deed remembered by which he died for each one of us, but to have it actually made present every day of his bride's life, made mysteriously present, um, made present in such a way that we could have his saving act and not just the memory of it, and not only that, we could join with him in his offering it to the Father. And that's essentially what the Mass is. And we don't usually get that in catechesis, but we'll talk about that in our third class at length. All right? Um, so Jesus, the night before he died, wanted to give his self to his bride, but also the very act by which he died for her giving himself to the Father so that we could have that sacrifice so it could be our sacrifice. Right, so we'll look at that at length. And then third, he wanted to give himself to us. Right? And that's what's most evident in the Last Supper. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Take and eat. Right? Take and drink. So that we receive that very body that remains with us, given for us, that very body we receive into us and into our bodies so as to make this union, right? And it's analogous to a spousal union. 
right? The, it's analogous to the act by which spouses become one flesh and become fruitful. And so the Eucharist, Christ's giving himself to us in this way makes us spiritually fruitful. And that's how the church gets built up because we get fed with love, with charity, by which we bring others to him. So that's the overview. So if we say now, why did Jesus institute the Eucharist? We'll say presence, sacrifice, and communion to be with us, to give himself for us, and to give himself totally to us. Right? He's totally with us. No part of him is missing. And he gives himself totally to us. Again, nothing of him is missing when we receive communion. Right, there's this, when we receive other food, right, we, we turn it into ourselves. Right? So if I eat an apple, or my dinner tonight, right, that dinner um, got turned into me. Um, but when we receive Jesus, why does he, he, re, he gives himself to us so that the opposite happens, right? So that we get progressively turned into him. Not, not that we stop being ourselves, right? But that we get transformed into him by... Um, being fed with his love, and thus being more and more configured to his heart. Okay? All right, so that's my overview of the why. And from this, we can see that the Eucharist, of all the gifts that, that God gives us, right? So he gives us life, he gives us uh, so many things, our parents, our families. Of all the things that he gives us, this is the greatest, right? Because in this, in other things, he gives us something that isn't him, right? So giving me my life, that's me. Um, giving me a house, giving me a job, giving me a family, um, all of those are wonderful, but that's not him, right? That's a created reality. But in the Eucharist, he gives us the best thing that he has to give, right? Which is himself. And so this is why it's impossible that there could be a better gift of God to us. Now, I may not appreciate it, right? I may not profit from it as I should, but he can't give me a better gift than the Eucharist. Now, that's a strong word to say about God, right? To say that God can't do something. But it's true here. He can't give us a better gift than himself. Right? So the Eucharist is the greatest gift that God could give to, to anyone in any possible world. Yeah. The problem is it's too big for us to take in. Right? But I know that that's true. I can't understand really what I said, but it's absolutely true. <coughs> questions on what we've done so far? I know it's a big group to ask questions, but... Keep on going. So let's look at, um, so granted what we've just said, that the Eucharist is the greatest gift of God to the world, we would expect to find it um, throughout Scripture. Right? So there's a general principle that when something is really fundamental, in other words, if the Eucharist is, so based on what we've just said, you can't think that the Eucharist is somehow, I don't know, marginal, to God's plan. Right? And therefore, we should expect to find it 
prepared for well, just as we find Jesus prepared for well. Right? So Jesus doesn't just plop into the world, but for 2,000 years, the Jewish people received prophecies about him and all kinds of figures. And so there's a preparation that's intense for Jesus coming into our world. So we should expect to see something similar for the Eucharist. Let me make an, let me highlight that a little bit. Um, so we said Jesus instituted the Eucharist for these three reasons. Um, we could ask a parallel why question. Why did the second person of the Trinity become man? So why did God become man? And, well, right, he wanted to be with us. With us in a human way. All right, God is with us. He's everywhere, right? So God is in this room, and in each one of us, if he's not in us, we would vanish into nothingness. But he's not with us in a human way, right? In this room. Upstairs he is. But down here in the chapel, right? But down here he's not, because he's with us in a divine way, keeping us in being. And so it was <clears throat> fitting for his spousal love for mankind, he's our bridegroom, that he wanted to come and share our condition. Right? So we could say a first reason why God became man is so that he could dwell with us and in a way proper to human beings, as a human being among human beings, visible and tangible. Right? The, the first letter of John begins with John saying, we have touched him the word of life, with our own hands and seen him with our own eyes and heard him with our own ears. Right? So God has, but it doesn't stop there, right? God became man, not just simply to be with us and not party or something, but to give himself for us, right? In other words, he became man so that as man, he could die for us and die for our sins and make satisfaction for our sins. Right? So God became man to be with us and to give himself for us, but not only that, right? Because why did he give himself for us? He sacrificed himself for us so that we could then share his life. Right? So he died for us so that we could get the grace of sharing his life so that we can be with him in intimate communion already in this life, but ultimately in heaven, right? So we could say that, um, and that um, this, so Jesus became man to make an exchange with us, right? So to be with us, we're uh, not alike, right? So union requires some kind of likeness, right? Perfect union. Um, so we are infinitely unlike God. So what does he do? He erases the difference by taking on our condition, making himself from the Son of God, making himself a son of man, so that we, sons and daughters of men, can be turned into sons of God, sons and daughters of God. Right? So there's an exchange. He takes on what is ours so as to give us what is his. In other words, he becomes man so that, so the fathers of the church say this in a really strong way. God becomes man so that men, men and women, can become God. All right. We don't 
mean replacing God. We mean that we become God by being divinized, by being made sons and daughters of God, by being given to share his nature. And that's what we mean by grace. Right? So we could say God becomes man to be with us, to give himself for us, and through that to win for us, to share his nature because he's first shared ours. Those ends of the Eucharist, I'm sorry, the ends of the incarnation, the reason why God became man is the same, you can see, as the reason why he instituted the Eucharist. Right? They're not separate reasons. My point is, the Eucharist is not marginal, but it, it's the, it's the, the reason for the Eucharist is the same as the reason for the incarnation. Right? To be with us, to give himself for us, and to give himself to us totally in a way fitting for us. All right, so granted that, we should expect to find this, the Eucharist, not just in the New Testament where Jesus institutes at the Last Supper, but we should expect to find it prepared for in the Old Testament. So that's what I want to look at now. So where do we find this in the Old Testament? And so there's actually tons of places. And too many to, um, so let's divide it. So let's start with the presence and then we'll go to the sacrifice and then we'll look at the union, okay? Um, all right, so in the, in the Old Covenant, God hadn't yet become man, but what, um, one of the key gifts of God to Israel was that he dwelt in their midst, mysteriously, right? And so we see this, so where do, we first encounter it with Moses, well, Abraham, God speaks with Abraham, and walk, Abraham walks with God. But then um, they go to Egypt, et cetera, and there um, and Moses um, encounters the presence of God in the burning bush, right? Um, so that would be a kind of um, prefiguring, but it's, it doesn't end there, right? So the Exodus, um, the people of Israel are accompanied by um, the presence of God in a pillar of cloud leading them and by day and a pillar of fire by night. Right? So he led them through the Red Sea in this way. He led them in the desert where they wandered for 40 years and God dwelt in their midst. And so there's a, um, there's a fancy term for this. Shekinah or Shekinah. Uh, so it comes from the, the Hebrew word to dwell. Shachan is simply to dwell. And so God dwelt in the midst of Israel, first in the cloud, the pillar, but then he had, when he appeared on Mount Sinai to Moses, he instructed Moses to make the tent of meeting. Right? And in the tent of meeting, there was to be the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was understood as the place where God dwelt with his people in their midst. And it was in a tent because they were nomads at this point. They were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And so when they went, broke camp, they, um, part of the instructions for making the tent of meeting was to make these poles by which you would carry it as you went from place to place. So God dwelt in their midst and actually was carried from place to place as they moved. Um, and so the, in the Ark of the Covenant, which would be the, the holiest place for Israel, there were th um, three things kept. Does anybody know what was in the Ark of the Covenant? 
What's that? The commandments. Yeah, the, so the, the two tablets of the law were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Because that's, that's the conditions of the covenant. God gives himself to us, but he requires something from us, and that's that we keep his commandments and so demonstrate our love for him and neighbor. All right, so the Ten Commandments, anything else? The staff of Aaron. So Aaron, um, Aaron was the high priest of Israel. And um, um, to show that he got the high priesthood, um, um, Moses had the, um, the 12 tribes, leaders of the 12 tribes, take a staff, and um, the staff that blossomed, right, these are simply cut pieces of wood, the cut piece of wood that flowered was the sign that the high priesthood belonged um, to that one, right? And so Aaron's rod flowered, and so that was a sign of his priesthood. Right? So that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And there was one more thing, which we'll talk about later. The manna by which God fed them in the desert. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Right? So God left, I'm sorry, instructed them to put in the Ark of the Covenant those three things. And so in, in a sense, they're all signs of, of the Messiah who was to come. Right? Jesus is the living Torah. So they had the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the living word. And the manna, we'll see later on, is a, um, a type of Christ as the bread of life. And Aaron's staff was a type of Christ, our eternal high priest. So in the Ark of the Covenant, you've got symbols of Christ. But you don't have Christ because he hasn't yet become man. All right? So in the Ark of the Covenant, you didn't actually have God dwelling with us because he hasn't yet taken our humanity so as to dwell with us, but you had figures of him to come. And that was the glory of Israel, that in the Ark of the Covenant, God dwelt with them in this, we could say, incomplete way or prefigurative way, symbolic way, pointing forward to something to come that would be immeasurably better. All right? So God dwelt with them. And by the way, just a little parenthesis, the land of Israel for Jews is um, important not just for political reasons. Jew, I mean, the attachment of Jews to Israel is that it's the land of the indwelling. Right? It's the land where God dwelt with them, first in the tent of meeting and then in the temple. Right? And so that land in which God dwelt is sacred to them because of God's unique presence there. Right? So that would be the the Shekinah, so it, or Shekinah, um, and sometimes it was made visible, right? So we see that with Moses. So when he would, the, the cloud would be outside um, when Moses or Joshua are praying, and then when he would emerge from it, his face would be radiant, right? So there was kind of a visible sign of God's presence in the tent of meeting. Um, and then later when David brought it into Jerusalem, right, so this is a beautiful passage, of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant, it had fallen into the hands of the Philistines and um, caused a plague of the Philistines. And so they, they got rid of it, but um, everyone was afraid of it. The Ark of the and so David finally brings it into Jerusalem and dances in front of it you know, and stalls it, but he doesn't yet, and he wants to build the temple, but God says that it'll be his son who will build it, right? Because he had, had too much blood on his hands. So David brings the... Um, the Ark of Covenant to Jerusalem, and his son Solomon builds the temple for it. And so when Solomon consecrated the temple, what happened? 
So this cloud, the cloud of glory, came down and descended upon it, right, as a sign of God's presence there. And so that was, again, the glory of Israel. And is in, um, that first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and Ezekiel has a vision of the glory um, rising and leaving the temple before it's destroyed. And then it was rebuilt. I don't think in the second temple there was a visible presence. But in any case, those, that cloud would have been a sign of God's somehow uniquely being present in the midst of his people. Right? And so that's a beautiful figure for the Eucharist. But it's important to look at the difference. Right? So the difference is that that presence wasn't, um, what should we say, um, God wasn't really more there than he is here. He was there in the sense that um, it gave a focus to their prayers and their devotion and their worship. So that's why Jews still today pray always facing Jerusalem, the site of the temple, even though the temple's been destroyed and the Ark of the Covenant disappeared 600 BC. Um, we, Jews always still pray to it as the sign of God's presence on earth. But again, it's not a, a substantial presence. In the Eucharist, all right, well, let's say first in the incarnation, God becomes present in an infinitely better way by assuming a humanity that's his in which he acts and reveals himself um, in, his, um, in his human nature. Right? So the human nature. Of, so we need the incarnation for there to be a full indwelling. But nevertheless, God prepared in this way such that it was that we could say the heart and soul, the most important part of, um, of the Jewish faith would have been that devotion to God's presence in their midst. Right, as the, the Lord of the covenant. And that's why the tragedy of being expelled from the land was, was so great. It's not just simply, I don't know, I can't go back to where I, I grew up in Long Island, so I live in St. Louis. Not like that. It's like losing God's presence in our midst. All right, so that's a, um, a first, a, a glorious figure of the, um, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Right, but again, the difference is that um, in the Eucharist, Christ is totally present, such that we have his humanity and his divinity, all of him. In other words, in order for God to be really present in a place, he has to take on a nature that can be in a place. Right? The divine nature, by its nature, is omnipresent. And so for him to be properly in a place, he has to take on a nature that has a body. And that, what he did was taking on human nature with the, by which he can be properly in place. In the Eucharist, he's still present in his humanity, even though veiled by the appearance of the bread and wine. But nonetheless, he's in a place, right in this We'll talk more about that. It's a little more complicated. We'll talk more about that next week. Um, so the Eucharistic presence is immeasurably better, but nevertheless prepared for it. Does that make sense? All right. Another way that the Eucharistic presence is better is, so if you're a Jew and you say this temple is still standing, to go to that presence, you had to go to Jerusalem. Right? And that's why God required the Israelites to come to Jerusalem three times a year for the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Right? So they had to physically go there. 
like Muslims to Mecca or something like that, right? But in the New Covenant, that presence, which is immeasurably better because it's God made man, is present, made present in every place that there's a priest and a tabernacle. Right? And so we've got a presence that is uh, superabundant. Right? The problem, again, is um, because it's so easily available, what's the danger? Familiarity breeds content. In other words, we don't, we don't prize what is so easy to, um, to obtain. Right? But it's an invitation, why I'm saying this, it's an invitation to spend time in adoration. All right, questions on that? Mm-hmm. Well, you couldn't go in, right? But so in the temple, there were the different courts where, where you, but you, you were praying to that presence there. Only the high priest and only once a year could actually go into the Holy of Holies. So it's a, a series of graded areas. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant would have been in what's called the Holy of Holies, which was like a cube space in the center. And then um, in front of that, there would have been the holy place or the sanctuary. And that's where Zechariah was at the beginning of Luke's gospel when he was doing the incest. So a priest would go in there every morning and evening to offer the sacrifice of incense, and, um, and there was a bread altar in there. So th but into the Holy of Holies, only once a year on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest and only with blood, the blood of, the, um, of um, a goat that had been sacrificed. Yeah. Right. So certainly, they don't use that term, right? right? And it wouldn't be right if they did, right. because it's not a substantial presence, um, because um, there isn't. God hasn't yet taken on a body. So and yeah, definitely a personal presence. Yeah. God is personal. But again, it's totally mysterious, so it's just simply not clarified. But I think the way that it's present, the way that Solomon speaks of it in that passage where he consecrates the temple is that you have, heavens and earth can't contain you. So what are you doing coming here? And so he says, well, you have made yourself, um, this, you have sanctified this place with your presence such that we can offer our prayers here with the assurance of them being heard. In other words, it's for our sake. In other words, it was for the sake of Israel that they could have that sense of presence proper to a human being who's in place and needs to relate to someone in a place. But God, nevertheless, wasn't properly in that place. But he properly is in place when he becomes man. All right? So that's why the figure always falls short of the reality. We could call the, what happens in Israel in the Old Testament the figure or type. And it can't equal the reality of the new covenant, right? But it prepares for it, okay? So yeah, no, not a substantial presence. Right, but, but more than just like symbolic figure, it is right. Like a symbol. Right, I mean, it is a symbol. Right. It definitely is a symbol, but um, it's a symbol that isn't um, totally inefficacious. Right. In other words, the prayers offered there, the worship offered there, 
is pleasing to God because he's made himself somehow available in a special way there. Okay? For our sake. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the temple is a beautiful type of, of Christ. And he makes that clear in the New Covenant, right? He speaks about his body as the new temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Right? So we can see that, that the temple was a type of his body, and also a type of his body contained in the Eucharist. One more type of God's presence with, uh, with his people was in Eden. Right? So in Eden, um, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day before their sin. Right? And so you can see that um, that was lost with the original sin. And already to Israel, in some way, it was restored, but in an imperfect way. But to his church, um, a perfect way, but still veiled. And in the church in heaven, perfect and unveiled. So let's go on now to the second part. Um, we said that the Eucharist is Christ's sacrifice. And so here we find the most figures, and so there are tons in the Old Testament, and not just in the Old Testament, but in all the religions of the world. So that's really interesting. Why in just about every religion um, is there an institution of sacrifice and priesthood? And so wherever you find, um, just give an example. I lived for a year in the, in the Holy Land, and... Um, and we would take field trips, and one of them was to Jericho. And so Jericho is certainly one of the oldest cities on earth that we have archaeological access to. So they've, dealt, they've dug this like an elevator shaft in the, this, the old city of Jericho, and um, the lowest level is about 7,000 BC. Right? So they, they date that. And what do they find in this lowest level? An altar. I mean, that's just typical. So wherever we find human remains in cities, um, we find evidence of religion, and not just religion, but of sacrifice and altars, and there, by implication, priesthood. And so we might ask, why is this so universal? Well, it's universal because man understands that all right, God has given everything to us, our life, our being, um, our sustenance, um, and yet, so... Just even by that, we ought to give something back, right? That's the way love works. And God gives, loves us first and gives himself to us, and, but we're called to reciprocate in some way. But how can we? That's the problem. So this is, sacrifice is a symbolic way. God doesn't need anything, right? I can't give him anything that he needs or um, adds to him. But I have to give something because that's the way the heart works, right? When you say, I love my spouse, I can't just keep it interior, right? You have to manifest it somehow exteriorly. So that's part of what sacrifice is, a way of manifesting exteriorly what's inside, which is the desire to return somehow to compensate. All right, that would be the case. Sacrifice would be that if no sin entered the world. Once, but sin has entered the world, and I'm a sinner. And so now there's a double reason to offer sacrifice, right? If I hadn't sinned, I would still want to offer something to show my love. But now once sin has entered the world, I want to offer something to make recompense, 
for having offended he who has given us everything. And again, the problem is, what can I give him back that could make recompense for sin, right? And so this is actually a bind because sin, we're capable of doing it, right? We all know by experience I'm capable of doing this. But the problem is I'm not capable by myself of making recompense. I'm capable all by myself of doing it, but I can't make reparation. And the reason for that is because I've offended and infinite person who's my infinite benefactor who's given me everything and so my offense has a certain infinite quality and I can't offer anything infinite to make up and furthermore um, the very fact that we have sinned makes our offering less worthy the offering of a sinner and so man finds himself in this bind. But nevertheless, even though our sacrifice is going to be infinitely insufficient, we're still called to do it. And every people understood this except for modern secular societies. Right? That man somehow has to um, externalize, show through symbols, external symbols given to God, that the sacrifice of the heart. So we'll look at this in the third talk. But um, you know the psalm, um, David's penitential psalm, Psalm 50, where at the end he says, um, I mean, what kind of sacrifices you, you didn't, wouldn't be enough, right? But what's acceptable is a humbled and contrite heart. But nevertheless, so that's the best offering we can make, but it still needs to be manifested symbolically. And the reason for this is we're, we, we're bodily creatures who are, Symbolic, and we need to manifest externally what happens inside. And so every culture is aware of this, and that's why you find sacrifice in every culture. And we could say that sacrifice, um, there are three, four purposes of sacrifice. Um, it's to adore God, to show our adoration for him. That would be the first. To thank him, so thanksgiving, to petition our needs, so we could say um, supplication, and to express our contrition um, for sin. I did this out of order, but um, one way to remember this is acts, if you put the C um, there, the contrition. Um, so, so sacrifice has those four purposes. To, so that's why sacrifice can only be offered to God, right? So if I offer sacrifice to someone else, that's treason. That would be, um, so it's an adoration proper to God alone. And so it can only be given to him. And it's giving thanks to receiving everything from him. Um, it's the best way to ask for our needs, and it's... Um, then it's the way we express our contrition for having offended him. But the problem is what we offer to God in sacrifice doesn't properly make reparation. And we'll talk more about that later. But the, the key idea is this. To make, if I've offended someone, let's suppose I've um, stolen something, right? I can't just simply say I'm sorry. I have to restore what I've taken away or destroyed. And that we call that reparation. And um, we can't offer to God something more pleasing 
then our sin is displeasing. That's the problem. But we do what we can. So we offer some sign of it. And so the, the sacrifices of, of all the religions of the world were in some way trying to do this. All right? So every religion has them. And, and so Israel isn't unique in that. But nevertheless, Israel was given sacrifices um, stipulated by God himself. Right? So that's the glory of Israel is that um, it gave to God the sacrifices that he himself asked for in the law of Moses. All right? So God dictated, as it were, to Moses the kinds of sacrifices that he would be pleased to receive from Israel. Right? And there were lots of them. And they're all figures of the Eucharist, as we'll see. Right? So maybe we'll go through some of them. Um, oh, and, and some of them go, so if you have sacrifice offered, um, you also need someone to offer it. Right? Now, we might think, well, maybe everyone just simply offers their own sacrifice. What would be the problem with that? Everyone's a priest and offers their own sacrifice. Okay, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be symbolic of something, and what would it not represent? That word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't represent the community in any way. It would just be individual sacrifices if we were all islands. But we're not islands. We're social beings, and we live in society. And so it's fitting that society offers something to God. And that's why and ancient cultures understood this. That's why not everybody offers sacrifice, but there's someone appointed to offer sacrifice on behalf of the whole community. Right? And that person is the priest. And we'll come back to this later on. All right, so Israel, likewise, got from God a priesthood and sacrifices to offer to him. And so all of those sacrifices are figures of the Eucharist, so we can go through them a little bit. Um, yeah, and so the book of Leviticus, everyone's favorite book, basically gives the prescriptions of how to offer sacrifice to God. And so what, what kind of things did God require? Did he require, um, so you might think, well, maybe the most valuable things would be good to give to God. I don't know, gold, rubies, something like that. But no, God doesn't require inanimate things. So the sacrifices are precisely those things that give life, right? life-giving things. And so it would be the very sustenance of a, so the sustenance of Israel was their livestock, but also their bread and wine. So all of those things were offered in sacrifice to God to be a sign of life. So God gives us life, and so it makes sense that we would give him back um, that which he has given us. Not all of it, right, but the first fruits, as it were, to be a symbolic um, offering um, of the contrite and humbled heart. Right? So the sacrifice of Israel were lambs, bulls. So um, every day there was to be a lamb offered morning and night in the temple. And that was the daily offering, twice daily. And on feast days, it would, Sabbath, it would be doubled. Um, and then on other feast days, um, multiplied more. Right? And then in addition, there were um, offerings for sin. Right? So if someone, and two different kinds, sins that were deliberate and sins that were um, um, not deliberate. 
And so each, the, there would be two different kinds of sacrifice. So they wouldn't, the second class, we wouldn't properly call sins. They would be um, things like ritual impurity and things of that sort. Um, non, non and so there would be a different sacrifice for those classes of actions. And then in addition, there would be free will offerings. Some, simply, you, like we might, um, I have a special intention that I want to pray for, and so I would offer a goat or a lamb for that. And so that would be a free will or peace offering. And in all of these offerings, what you had to do was pour out the blood. And so in a, in a sacrifice, the sacrifice, the animal would be slain, right, in such a way that the blood would be poured out on, if you were in the temple, onto the altar. Um, and if, um, at least onto the ground, because the, the blood is the Lord. So why is that? Why does the blood belong to the Lord? Yeah, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the life, right? So we, um, obviously the soul is properly the life, but the blood is, our, we say, the life blood. And so it's a way of representing that God gives life to us, and so what we want to give back is the life, even though, obviously, the blood is just a sign of the, the life. Yeah. And so that, that's why blood in Israel was sacred to God and couldn't be consumed. It was his portion. And so the, yeah, the most sacrilegious thing in Israel that you could do was have eat blood sausage or something like that. Yeah to eat the blood, because that's God's part, right? And then the different kinds of sacrifice, um, some would be totally consumed and given to God, and that would be the Holocaust, or whole burnt offering. But most sacrifices weren't, um, they would be consecrated to God, but then um, at least, so some sacrifices, the priests would eat them. And that was how the priests were, um, that's how they lived, is they would eat the meat of the, animals that were sacrificed and that weren't whole holocausts. And then free will offerings would be eaten also by the people who offered them. And so in all, the great majority of sacrifice in Israel had this, both of these aspects. So this, it was sacrifice given to God, but then the people received it in communion. Right? And it would be called some form of communion sacrifice. Yeah. The people consuming a part. And the idea of this is that um, in offering the sacrifice, the lamb is consecrated to God and given to God as it were. Obviously, God doesn't eat the lamb, but nevertheless, the idea is it's his portion, and by receiving a share of it, that's a sign of communion between man and God. We share a meal together. All right, that's, I mean, it's a metaphor, but that's, religion works on symbols and metaphors. And so the, in every sacrifice, not, not, I'm slightly exaggerating, in every sacrifice except the whole burnt offering, the Holocaust, there's an element both of sacrifice and communion. All right, and so that's how the sacrifice were in, in Israel and in other religions as well. Yeah. Other religions, there would sometimes be things not wanted by God, like human sacrifice, and think of the Aztecs. So there would be human sacrifice, and the priest would eat the human sacrifice, right? So there would be cannibalism mixed into it. But again, that would be a deviation that still is showing a part of um, the true worship, right? That God wants some kind of sacrifice, not 
human sacrifice, but some, some symbolic sacrifice that represents the sacrifice of the heart that's given to God, but also shared in by man to show the communion that we want to establish to reconcile God and man. All right? Um, a sign of this was in, when Moses established the old covenant on Mount Sinai, um, the covenant had to be sealed. How? How did they seal the covenant between God and man? With sacrifice, right? With the sacrifice of bulls. And so Moses had 12 bulls sacrificed, and the blood, half of it, poured onto the altar that he erected there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the other half, anybody know? Sprinkled on the people. Right? So the blood, yes, it's God's portion. So why would it be sprinkled on the people? To be a sign of communion between God and man. Right? And so a covenant requires, so in the ancient world, you can't have a covenant without there being a sacrifice that seals it and is the sign of the covenant. And the blood, again, being God's portion, but in some way, um, at least in the, the, old, the covenant of Sinai, some way also being um, received by man, at least through the sprinkling. All right? So all of this is going to prepare for the Eucharist. Now another thing to see in these sacrifices is the sheer number of them. So the, of all the sacrifices, the, the greatest number, well, there were great numbers when, um, so when Solomon consecrated the temple, um, uh, the book of Kings tells us that um, something like, Hundred thousand sheep, some incredible number of sheep were sacrificed, um, but that was a one-time thing. But every year at the Passover, um, so in the Passover, what happens? The original one, and each year. So each year there would be a celebration of the original one, and it would be the same thing, right? So each family unit. So this is given to us in Exodus um, chapter twelve. And we read this in the Easter Vigil, I think. No, in Holy Thursday. Um, so each family unit had to take a lamb. And so you would take a lamb from your flock, one year old, without spot or blemish. Um, you would bring it into the household, as it were, um, five days beforehand. And then on the 14th of the month, month of Nisan, which would be more or less our March, it had to be sacrificed, um, but not anywhere. It could only be sacrificed at the tent of meeting. And so once the temple was built, it could only be sacrificed in Jerusalem in the temple. So this is why families came to Jerusalem for Passover. Right? And so every family unit had to come with a lamb. And now Israel at the time of Jesus had a rather large population. So it's estimated, there's a, um, a historian named Josephus who estimates that maybe 20 years after Jesus, there were two million pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover. And, and basically that would be anyone who lived in Israel who could get there. And, all right, maybe let's just say that's an exaggeration. Let's say the right number is a quarter of that. Suppose you have 500,000 people. Still, each family unit has to have a lamb. Suppose you had 500 people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. Each group, say, of 10 with their own lamb, um, all of those lambs had to be sacrificed in the temple on the afternoon of the 14th of Nisan and then consumed each one in, the, in your family um, Passover Seder. 
that would mean that there would be something like 50,000 lambs sacrificed in the temple court on the 14th of Nisan. Right? And this is the setting for the Last Supper. Right? Jesus celebrates his Last Supper. We'll talk about that. Uh, I'm going to run out of time. But um, Jesus celebrates the Last Supper um, on that day, right? the, the evening after um, the lambs would have been sacrificed. There's a discussion about this, but I'm going to spare you the, the debate about um, which day Jesus celebrated Last Supper. But the Synoptic Gospels tell us that it was the 14th of Nisan, right? the day in which the lambs were sacrificed in the temple. Right. So let's just imagine 50,000. I mean, that's a lot of blood. right? And all the blood would have been poured out on the altar, and then the lambs taken back and roasted and eaten, consumed that night. Right? So that's the Passover. So it, it, again, it's a perfect sacrifice because it shows us um, both the, the idea of it, that so the Paschal lamb is sacrificed to the Lord first, but then received in communion by the family unit, right? by, the, by the extended family. And that, so the Passover is the most perfect figure of the Eucharist, right? because it's, it's a, a sacrifice on a colossal scale, right? 50,000 lambs being sacrificed, and all of them re-eaten in communion. So it's not surprising that Jesus chooses to institute the Eucharist in the celebration of the Passover at the Last Supper, right? It makes sense. So he's instituting a new Passover that's more perfect, infinitely, than the old one. But he's choosing that occasion to do it. Right? And another beautiful thing about the Passover is that there's also bread and wine. So a key part of the Passover Seder is matzah, Matzah is the unleavened bread. So during the Passover, Jews couldn't eat leavened bread. They had to, so they had to clear away all the leaven and, and, and have unleavened bread. And so it's, a lot of emphasis is given to that bread. And at the beginning of the Passover Seder, the head of the household would take the, the matzah, the unleavened bread, and distribute it to, to the guests, to the household. And Jesus did that as well at the Last Supper. And so the, um, I'm sorry, I'm, Going a little too fast, perhaps. And the, if you want to look at this, and if you look at Luke's gospel at the Last Supper account, that's the clearest to see what's going on. Right? So Luke lays out the supper, and so I mean, he tells us that um, after Jesus distributes this bread, he says, right, the words of the institution, this is my body given for you. Right? So Jesus inserted the the, the new Passover into the old Passover, right, transforming it. But then there would have been the meal, and that would be eating the, um, the lamb. Now, if you, I'm sorry, a little parenthesis here. If you go to a Passover Seder today, is there a, a lamb? No. There's a lamb bone there, symbolic, but there's no lamb. And why is that? There's no temple. The lamb had to be sacrificed in the temple. Temple got destroyed 70 AD the offering of sacrifices of Israel stopped. So Israel no longer has any sacrifices for the last 19 centuries because it had to be offered there and that place got destroyed and now there's something else there, right? What's there now? The Dome of the Rock, which blocks a rebuilding of the temple for the last 1,500 years, All right? So this is why um, Israel lost its sacrifices. But up until the year 70, so 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, um, yes, there would have been a lamb sacrificed, and there would have been a lamb at the Last Supper. 
But Jesus is the real lamb, right? He's the real lamb. And there's another beautiful detail. On the Passover, you brought the lamb into your household five days before. Right? What does Jesus do five days before the Last Supper? Comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right? With the hosannas and all that. That's the lamb entering um, his household, as it were, entering into to Jerusalem. All right. After now, in the Passover Seder, there's wine plays a big part as well. And so today there are four cups. We're not sure that that was the case at the time of Jesus, but probably it was. And, um, and so you have to drink these four cups, one at the very beginning, one at the, um, before the meal. And Luke tells us that that cup was passed around, but that wasn't the cup Jesus chose to say, this is the chalice of my blood. That was the third cup that he took after the meal. And so he took that chalice that would have been passed around and said, this is the chalice of my blood, right? The blood of the new covenant um, poured out for you. And so, um, yeah, so Jesus instituted the Eucharist in the Passover because it was the most perfect figure or type of, um, of the Eucharist. But look at the differences, right? So in the Passover, what did you eat? You ate bread and wine and a lamb, right? But in the Eucharist, um, we've got the appearances of bread and wine but we've got the real lamb, right? The, the lamb of God, the one, um, and it's the one and only, we'll talk about this later, perfect sacrifice. So to be a perfect sacrifice, it has to be more good than sin is bad. Right? To, to make proper recompense, to make satisfaction, and that's the problem is we don't have anything of our own that we can offer that's more good than human sin is bad. Right? So the Paschal lamb that Israel offered wasn't that, right? The letter of the Hebrews says, how could the blood of lambs and goats make um, atone for sin? Right? Because lambs and goats aren't better than sin is bad. But in the, the Eucharist, we've got a sacrifice that's more good than all human sin put together from the beginning to the end is bad. Right? And so in every Mass, we're offering something more pleasing than all sin is displeasing. I will come back to that. So the Passover is the best um, figure of the Eucharist. In addition to the Passover, there was also a daily offering of bread and wine. So that, too, is a figure. And an interesting thing is um, there was um, bread, the bread of the presence, so in the Holy of, uh, not in the Holy of Holies, sorry, but in the, the room right next to it, the, the holy place, there was an incense altar and an altar of bread. And so Israel, the high priest would, the priest would put bread on that altar. They would make it each week, and one for each, one loaf for each tribe of Israel. And it was called the bread of the face. Strange name. Meaning the bread of the face of God. In other words, put in the presence of God before his presence in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And um, so that's a beautiful figure of the Eucharist, right? Why, I mean, it's as if uh, a bread associated with his presence, but nevertheless, the bread was just bread, right? And there's that incident when David was fleeing from Saul and he came into the, um, the sanctuary and he didn't have any bread. And so the, he took, he, ate, he and his men ate that bread that's a type of communion. 
But nevertheless, that was just bread. And so the type, again, falls short of the reality of the Eucharist. Okay? Um, an interesting detail, um, when um, the Israelites would come to Jerusalem for the pilgrimage feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths in the fall, um, the Talmud, which is a, kind of the, um, the book of Jewish traditions, tells us that the, the priest would take this showbread, the bread of the presence, and hold it up to the pilgrims, saying, behold the love of God for you. Um, it was just bread, but nevertheless a beautiful figure of um, Eucharistic benediction. Okay, questions on the aspect of, I mean, there's tons more one could say, but questions on sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's a, clearly it's not the same as heaven. And in heaven, the proper face-to-face is the beatific vision. Right. So Moses didn't have that, it seems. Yeah. So what is the face-to-face? It's, the, it's a term of intimacy. Right? So Moses had an intimacy in prayer that wasn't a mere ritual. Right? And so he's a model for each one of us here and now. But it's a type of what will be in heaven a true face-to-face, okay, great. All right, let's look at the last um, figure, and that would be of communion. So we've already seen it. Every sacrifice in Israel had an aspect of communion. But there's another figure that is also of communion, and um, we mentioned earlier, anybody? So communion here is Christ giving us himself under the appearance of bread and wine. So in the desert, when they wandered for 40 years after the Exodus, God fed them with bread from heaven. So the, the manna is a beautiful type of the Eucharist. And it's one of the easiest to, to see. Yeah. So the, the very word manna, what does that mean? In Hebrew, yeah. There's, so it has a, it's, it's the Hebrew word for what's that? Ma is what? So manna, what's that? Why would that be an appropriate name for the manna? Right? It was something totally foreign to them to emphasize that this is something out of their experience. God giving them food, not from the earth, but um, from, the wrong, from above, right? it come, came down like dew. So the very name manna shows, is a figure of the Eucharist, which is the most mysterious reality. Right, secondly, it wasn't the fruit of their labor. Right? It was a free gratuitous gift that they didn't have to work for. Right? And likewise, the Eucharist is not the fruit of our effort or our merit, but a totally gratuitous gift from above, but more from above than the manna, right? So the manna was physically from above in the sense that it would come down like, like dew on the ground rather than growing up from the earth, right? But the Eucharist is Christ who's come down to us from heaven in the incarnation and in some way comes down from heaven. That's a metaphor. We'll talk about that later next time. Um, in every mass, right, becoming present on the altar um, from above. All right? So the, the mana was a type of um, the Eucharist in that way. And then in addition, the mana had this property that um, it didn't matter how much you took. Right? If you gathered a ton, you got just enough to feed your family. And if you just gathered a tiny bit, it was just enough to feed your family. 
So that, too, is a type of the Eucharist in which each one of us, it doesn't matter, obviously, the size of the host, right? If we receive, sometimes when the, the end of the communion line, not enough hosts were consecrated, you might get a tiny little fragment, or you might get a big host, whatever. It doesn't make any difference. But it's not just, so the size is immaterial. But not just that, each person gets a grace proper to each one. And we'll talk about that in our last talk on Holy Communion. Everyone receives communion. We all receive the same Christ, but we don't receive the same graces because we don't go to communion with the same dispositions. And so we all get a grace proper to the disposition of our heart, even though we all receive the same Jesus. I'll, talk, I'll explain that more in our last talk. Right? And so in that way, the manna was a kind of type of that. Each person got the right amount for them. Right? And so in all those ways, and it supplied them how long? As long as they wandered in the desert. And the desert is a type, right? They wandered for 40 years, and those 40 years of wandering are a type of this life, right? So they entered into the desert through the waters of the Red Sea. That's a type of baptism, right? So we enter the Christian life through our baptism, but we're not immediately in heaven. We have to struggle in the desert of this life for the 40 years of our of our life, as it were. And so the Israelites, during that exile and pilgrimage, were fed by the bread from heaven, as we are fed in this Christian life by the Eucharist. Okay? So it's a beautiful type of, um, of the Eucharist. One last one, though, is the, and so maybe that's the best one. Um, there were also sacrifices of bread and wine that were consumed. Um, but maybe the, the, the last one was in the garden. There was a type of this. And it was the tree at the center, the tree of life. And so in, in the garden, there was something physical that was um, in some way God giving to Adam and Eve, if they hadn't fallen, some access to the divine life. And when they fell through original sin, they were expelled from Eden. And thus, the worst thing about that was the loss of access to the tree of life, right? resulting in death and, and all the rest. And so the Eucharist, in some way, is the remedy to the loss of Eden. Right? God in, so Jesus, I was, I, um, let's look at the, shift to the New Testament for a second. Jesus talks about the Eucharist where? John 6. All right, how does he present it? He's the bread of life. We should make a connection there. Bread of life, tree of life. Jesus is presenting himself and the bread that he gives us in the Eucharist as a new tree of life, as it were. And what are the effects? Anyone who eats this will not die, right? In other words, receiving the Eucharist um, is in some way a pledge of immortality if we receive it with the right dispositions. And so it's, it matches um, in some way... Um, restoring our access to the, the tree in the garden. Okay. All right, let me just say something about, before we end, five minutes, something about the bread of life discourse. All right, so Jesus in the bread of life discourse um, prepares, so it's the setting. What's the, the setting for the bread of life? Does know? It's, it's a Passover. And again, that's important. It's a year probably before his death and before the institution of the Eucharist. So one year earlier, he pre-announces what he's going to do, but not fully explaining what he's going to do. Right? And so he, he sets it up how? 
What does he do the day before? The multiplication of the loaves for the 5,000, right? So the feeding of the 5,000. People want to make him king after that. Well, why is that? Right, so they were going to make him, and so he hides himself from them, goes up the mountain, prays by himself, um, because the people took it as a messianic sign. Him, why? Because Moses fed the people in the desert with the manna. And so there was an expectation that the Messiah would be a new Moses and repeat somehow the miracles of the first Moses in the Exodus. All right, Moses fed them, and so they were expecting Jesus to feed them likewise. But what's the problem? So they come the next day and they look for him, right? And Jesus rebukes them and says, you, come he you came here because, in a sense, you want a free lunch. Um, and so he says, seek not the bread that perishes, but the bread that gives eternal life. And so he's making a, he's showing the difference between the manna and the Eucharist, right? The manna, they ate it and they died. In other words, it was bread for the body. Even though it was miraculous, came from above, it still, it was not the same as the Eucharist because it, it restored the body. Whereas the Eucharist, even though, yes, it will, if you eat enough of it, it would actually nourish you, but that's not its purpose, to nourish the body, but to nourish the soul, right? And so the whole, the bread of life discourse is playing on that type and reality. The manna feeding the body, but the bread of life nourishing the soul. And so he's presenting the Eucharist as our spiritual nourishment. Nourishment with what? His life. What life is that? Not just his earthly life, but his divine life. Right? So it's precisely that exchange that we talked about. The Son of God becomes a Son of Man to give us a share, to make us sons of God, to give us a share of his divine life. And so the Eucharist, he's explained the bread of life, is the instrument by which he does that. He gives us his body so that with his body we receive a share of his divine life if we have the right dispositions. In other words, if we're in a state of grace, if we're uh, repentant for our sins. Um, and it's done, though, in a way proper to human beings, not all at once. In other words, we get nourished in the spiritual life in a way analogous to how we nourish in our physical life, which is um, day by day. In other words, progressively, all right? So the bread of life discourse, I'm, I mean, there's tons more one could say about it, but Jesus presents himself as the bread of life. But then he takes it, so the beginning of the discourse is he's saying he's the bread of life, right? And he's come down of heaven to be the new manna. But then the discourse gets more difficult because he says, well, what is this bread of life? It's my body, right? My flesh, as it were. And so that's when it becomes difficult, right? And people walk away. And so he's heightening at each step in the bread of life. He's saying he's the bread of life, but the way that we receive this bread of life is to receive his body. But not just the body. Right? That would be bad enough, right? So people are thinking cannibalism. But then the worst is, and drink my blood, right? Because that's reserved for God, even if it was animal blood. So Christ's blood, but the meaning is clear, right? The blood is the sign of life. And here, the man who's also God is giving us his life by giving us his blood. It's the perfect sign by which he would give us um, his whole life, 
including his divine life. Right? But clearly it's something that's hard to swallow, right? And so, not surprisingly, many people left him that day. Yeah. And so Jesus insists in that discourse on the necessity of faith, right? And the same thing is true for us, right? And so that's where Peter comes in. You have the words of eternal life, and I believe it because you say so, right? So the bread of life discourse, we could say, has those key themes. He's the bread of life coming from above. He's giving us that life by giving us his body and his blood and we have to receive it in faith because he has the words of eternal life. One, but the apostles were, disciples were confused, right? And he doesn't fully clarify because everything has a time. So one year later, it happens, right? And that's at the Last Supper when he institutes the Eucharist and says, this is my body, this is my blood, right? And, um, we can pick up a little there next time, and then we'll go on to the, the real presence. Okay? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We give you thanks, Almighty God, for the gift of the Eucharist. Help us to receive it with more and more desire through Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.